RadioInfluence.com. Why, Crusher, it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10 12 60 with your questions, comments, or smart ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Kershell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Listen, if you want to reach out, get in touch with us, send us a message, questions, comments, smart remarks, or if you have something you'd like us to investigate, or if you need help with something, crushperformance.com is the website. Info at crushperformance is the email. We answer every message we get. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush, and on all of the social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance, and we probably have something there for sure. Okay, we're in the early stages of wrapping up our two major themes for 2021, Talent and Talent ID, and the Crush Brain Game. And these two worlds are most definitely connected and integrated, probably more than we all realize. And connecting the dots and bringing those two worlds together is our quest here for November and into December as 2021 wraps up and we bring it to a close. And this week's episode is no exception. We kicked off this huge wrap-up series with Dr. Rob Gray, Associate Professor of Human Systems Engineering at Arizona State University and the uh, host of the Perception and Action podcast. Just a fabulous contextual conversation on our environments, our coaching strategies, and how we learn, how we perceive our environments in order to learn and how coaches, teachers, employees, employers can create environments where we not only can learn at higher rates and probably more deep than we normally would, but also so we can connect those dots and bring it into performance so we can perform at new levels. Fantastic conversation with Dr. Gray. And then we followed that up with a little dive into more of the brain game side of things with Dr. Richard Harvey from San Francisco State University. Dr. Harvey has done extensive work in bio and neurofeedback. He's done tons of research on addiction and stress and other disorders. And he's also spent a lot of time looking at the psychology of hardiness, courage, and resiliency. And the big takeaway for me was not only the context of those important factors, but also sort of the manual guide that he put together for us and how we should go about learning, but also as instructors, teachers, coaches, how we should build out a um, timeline for teaching the skills that need to be taught in a long-term approach, which is the key to everything. This week, I want to stay within the lines of the crush brain gain theme, and I want to look at wiring of the brain, how we learn, how trainable is it? I also want to get into the conversation of nature versus nurture. We've gotten away from that a little bit, but it's so important to understand the balance between those two. But much like talent, talent ID and the crush brain game, those two worlds are so interconnected. You cannot talk about them separately. I don't even think it's a verse thing. It's together, how they work together. It's not one or the other. It's both together. And that's kind of what I want to get to today. So let's get after it. I am very happy to introduce Dr. Kevin Mitchell, Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College in Dublin. Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for joining Crush Performance here today. So glad to have you on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. You know, our Brain Game series is kind of wrapping up here as 2021 comes to a close. But one of the areas that we really haven't addressed is sort of the idea of long-term development and how we develop over time. And, you know, just looking at all of your work in genetics and trainability, I thought this might be a great conversation. Uh, But before we get to that, I'm actually very intrigued to get a better understanding of how you wound up studying the area you're in, because it's fascinating work you're doing. Yeah, um, thanks. Well, so I um, did my undergraduate work at, in, in genetics and uh, became interested in, in a big problem in genetics, which is how organisms develop. So if you have a, a fertilized egg, we all start life as a fertilized egg, as an embryo, just a single cell has a, its uh, DNA in there. 
that specifies how the whole thing is going to develop. So as, as a human or as a crocodile or as a pig or whatever it is, um, the DNA is the, basically the recipe to make, you know, for us a human being. But of course, we all have, um, you know, differences in that recipe, which, which make us um, develop slightly differently. So um, I became particularly interested in how the brain develops because it's incredibly complicated piece of machinery with, you know, hundreds of hundreds of billions of neurons and trillions of, of connections between them. And they're all laid out in really stereotyped way, incredibly complicated circuitry. Somehow that has to be programmed into the genome. And um, for my PhD, I went to, uh, went to Berkeley and worked on trying to figure out some basics of how that works actually in fruit flies, fruit fly embryos. Um, so we took a really simple system and tried to understand how a nerve goes left or right. Basically, simple, the simplest uh, kind of decision that the, a growing nerve could make within a, within a brain. Um, and so that led, um, you know, we, we, we found some really interesting stuff, started to figure out that program and understand it a bit. And then I moved to working on mammals, so working on mice, the same problem, trying to understand the genetics of how the brain is wired. And when I moved back to... Um, Trinity College in Dublin to set up my own lab. I kept working on mice, but also became interested in humans. And it, you know, mice and humans, uh, their brains are actually laid out in very similar ways. I mean, humans, the cortex on the outside is obviously thousands and thousands of times bigger, but the basic principles of how it develops are very much the same. And the genetics, you know, we we share all the same genes as mice. Um, they're just used in slightly different ways. So, um, yeah, so I started getting interested in a different question, which is if there's a genetic program of development that makes a human brain, and we all have a different version of that because our genes are different, um, then our, our brains should develop slightly differently. And then the question is, well, what's the consequence of that? You know, where, how does that manifest? Does that manifest in our psychology, in, um, in, in, you know, risk of psychiatric disorders and things like that, or, or other aspects of our behavior. And it turns out there's a whole field, of course, of behavioral genetics that's looking at, you know, studying behavioral traits in humans and then, um, you know, trying to see how much of the variation that you see in personality or intelligence is due to genetic differences. And it turns out that most of those differences are really coming from how the brain develops. So those two fields of developmental neuroscience and behavioral genetics turn out to be the same thing. They're studying the same thing just from a different angle. And um, that's what that's what led me to um, write this book that came out a, a few years ago called Innate, which is about how the wiring of our brains shapes who we are. And, and it's gotten me into, um, yeah, really broad sort of areas of interest of uh, differences between humans and where they come from. Yeah, no, the book is fascinating. It's called Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. And you could check that out, everybody. The links are at Kevin's website, kjmitchell.com. You can uh, search out Dr. Mitchell there and, and get links to all of his great information. Well, listen, Dr. Mitchell, we always say on the show, and when we're working with our athletes, um, you know, we always really stress the whole concept of if we're going to solve a problem, we really have to spend time clearly defining the problem. <laughs> And oh boy, have you opened a Pandora's box, man. I'm telling you right now, this idea of the brain and brain development is fascinating. And you know, I, I was so excited with the mapping of the human genome because we I thought we man, we're gonna get such a great uh understanding or great insights into how people develop over time and what influences really trigger changes in the body. And this idea of brain development for the crush brain game has been a big one. And it kind of comes down to that old, old, age-old conversation of nature versus nurture. And you've put a really cool twist on that old sort of, you know, um, battle between the two, the two uh, trains of thought. You put the nature of nurture, which I thought was a really interesting twist on an age-old sort of, you know, epic battle between which way does it really work? Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, that battle is between two extreme positions. <clears throat> and as often happens, neither of them is is right. You know, it's a sort of a, a in the middle, but but it's interesting, the the interaction between them, which is, um, you know, what what you're saying as a nurture of nurture. So just to, you know, for your for your listeners, the nature versus nurture idea would be, you know, people who are who 
believe in nature would say, well, you just are the way you are, your psychology, um, whatever, um, you know, it's all genetic or it's all innate. And, um, you know, different kids within a family just are different ways and, and so on. Um, whereas the nurture people would say, well, they're, they are different ways because they've been raised differently. And it's, it's their upbringing, uh, you know, between individuals in the population that makes the biggest difference in personality or character or temperament. And there's a, there's a bit of truth to both of those, but what's interesting is, is the interaction. So first of all, we all do differ in innate psychological predispositions. So as I was saying earlier, there's a program in our, in our genome, in the, in the human genome, to make the human brain, which has a certain set of characteristic behavioral capacities and tendencies that define humans uh, as a species. But we all, have, we all have our own version of that, right? So, um, so it's almost unavoidable that there would be some variation in the, in the way our brains are wired and the way our psychology therefore emerges from the way our brains work, just as we see variation in height and facial features and everything else. Even though we're all humans, there's all that variation. So, um, so there is genetic variation in the way the brain develops. And you can see that because people who are more related to each other physically have more similar brains. So if you look at the brains of identical twins, they're very, very similar to each other. Um, and the brains of, of fraternal twins, who are a really good control group to compare with, are less similar to each other, which really shows there's a strong genetic uh, component. But there's a flip side to that, first of all, in terms of what, the, what makes things innate, which is that the brains of identical twins are not identical. They're really, really similar, but there's also some variation even when they're just born. There's already variation in the way their brains um, are structured. So that variation just comes from the way development happens to run in any sort of, you know, like, like with their faces, they're not completely identical. Um, in fact, like with any of us, the left and, left and right sides of our faces are not completely identical. So, um, so whenever you run this program, you don't get exactly the same output because the program doesn't encode the final product. It's not a blueprint. It's more like a recipe. So it encodes a set of rules whereby when the cells in the embryo start to divide, these bits make a, you know, the, the, the arms and the legs and these bits make the stomach and these bits make the heart and the bits of the brain. Um, but those processes are, uh, there's a bit of randomness there in how they actually happen. So, so what that means is we do start with, with differences in our brains and differences in our innate psychology that are due to those two factors. One is genetic differences, and then two is just the way that development in utero, in the womb, happened to go. And if we ran the same program again, it wouldn't, you wouldn't get the same person out, you'd get a clone or a twin of the same person with a slightly different brain and a slightly different, um, you know, psychology. So, so we do start with innate predispositions. The idea of the blank slate is just dead. There's no, it's just a, a not a, a supportable position at this stage. And I think that fits with everyday experience. You know, I think um, someone said, you know, if if you have one child, you may believe in nurture. Uh, that is, you, you think your upbringing is doing everything, right? But then when you have a second child, you're like, oh, no, it's not me at all. They're totally different. And we're trying to treat them the same. Um, so then you believe in nurture. Um, and if you have three childs, then, then children, then you believe in birth control. <laughs> well, I have three daughters, mister. And I'll say we weren't, I didn't have the nerve to try for a fourth. You know, I'm telling you right now, we are looking for that boy. So I understand we're talking with Dr. Kevin Mitchell, associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College in Dublin. Well, Dr. Mitchell, this is a fascinating conversation for the crush brain game, because as you mentioned, you know, those similarities in the brain. Yet, if we look at the structure of the brain, so let's start here. Let's start with that hardcore anatomy. Isn't it interesting yeah. what we've learned from a physiology standpoint, which is my my area of background? You know, if we want to change the muscle to get stronger, we train it and put a certain type of stress on it. If we want to make it more powerful and integrate it with the nervous system and have everything work a certain way to be more explosive and powerful and, and create more speed generation, we train it a certain way. If we want to create endurance. So we've learned about all these things from the physiological standpoint. So here is the big, big question for, for maybe um, this conversation. How trainable 
is the brain then? Because we have the structures, right? Everybody has the similar structures in the brain. Yeah. We, and, we, and we actually have mapped that quite well. I, I think, you know, our understanding of what those structures do um, is really maybe pretty good. From a neuroscience standpoint, I'll leave this to you to comment on. I don't know if we understand really how they all integrate together because whew, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, we don't. But, but yeah. boy, oh boy, once we start harnessing this, um, how trainable is it? And, and, and what is the potential here? It's got to be astounding. Yeah, well, absolutely. So there's, I guess there's two ways to answer that. First of all, um, the brain is very trainable because that's what it's for. Right. Oh, I mean, right. it's a no. learning machine. It, it, and it, it's um, the whole brain is is plastic. Right. So the connections between all the, the, the nerve cells in the brain are changing all the time in a way that accumulates knowledge. So uh, basically, the, the you know, you get these incoming patterns of, of sensory stimuli, things that are um, paired in the environment or events that happen regularly. And you want to learn about those because that's. Um, that's what brains are good for. They, they help organisms survive by allowing them to understand things about their environment and then use that knowledge to predict things about their environment so they can anticipate things and better know how to behave in a given situation. Right? So, um, so as a, just as a blanket statement, everything about the brain is, is, is plastic in that sense. But... There's a flip side to that, which is that it, it can't be completely plastic, right? Or else it would be, it would go from being plastic to being fluid and, and it wouldn't retain anything. So it has to balance stability where it can retain what it's learned already with plasticity at a certain level for a certain type of thing. And the processes of brain development kind of merge into this idea of plasticity in that they set up the broad wiring of the brain. And then at a certain point, they stop, right? I mean, those processes where you're really getting nerves growing long distances and connecting with different parts of the brain, they don't continue because it, that would be pathological if they, if they did. So the refinement that happens after that is, is on the, this sort of micro scale of connections. And really, it's very similar, if any of your listeners know about neural networks and deep learning and stuff like that. This is how deep learning works in, in artificial intelligence is that you give the, the, the network loads of and it reconfigures the weights of connections between different artificial neurons in the network. So our brain does the same thing. So we can learn lots of, lots of new things. Um, and of course, in humans, we have this extended period of, of development where you know, our brain doesn't stop maturing really until we're about 25 years old. So we have this, unlike many other animals, we have this um, overlapping time period of learning and maturation at the same time. So we can, in a sense, through that, through that period, um, adapt our brains to the regularities of our own environment and our own experiences. Now, that doesn't mean we can totally reshape our innate predispositions that wiring is probably there and probably pretty pretty fixed but that's only the baseline you know those say personality traits and things like that they're just a baseline and on top of that this is the nature of nurture idea um, on top of that our experiences um, you know allow our character uh, to to develop and our habits and our actual behavior so in terms of general behavior we, we have these predispositions, they influence the way that we behave, they influence in a sense how we perceive the world, um, they, they, they may influence, say, how risk averse you are or something like that. Um, and over time, that plays out because it can get reinforced by the way you choose what to do, the kind of things you like to do, um, the sort of practice that you get, the things that you get better at, and so on. So there's a sort of a loop uh, between these innate differences that we all have and our experiences and these forces of plasticity, which then shape, um, shape the brain. I'll give you an example, actually, if you don't mind me going yeah, on. A bit, no, yeah. no, let us have it. Yeah. So, so um, one of the examples of plasticity that happens when, when um, babies are growing and children are growing is in language and actually in perception. So when we hear the sounds in our native language, they're just a subset of all the sounds that we could hear. And different languages use different, what, what are called phonemes. So k, b, p, 
you know, t. Those are ones in English, but there's different sounds in in uh, in Chinese or Japanese or French, even intonations and things like that. And babies become really, really good at distinguishing the sounds in their own language, but they become really bad. They lose the ability, actually, to distinguish sounds um, where there, there isn't a border in their own language, even though in another language there might be. So, for example, Japanese people may not hear the difference between an R and an L sound because that isn't a phonemic distinction in their language. So there's a plasticity that happens that is uh, basically allows the brain to adapt to, like I said, the regularities of its environment. Uh, but at the same time, as it's as it's specializing, it's losing the potential to learn other things because after a certain period, it becomes, as I'm sure you know, really difficult to learn a second language without having an accent. You know, it's very very difficult right. because your brain has your brain has sort of solidified at, at a certain point that that learning that you've had as a across your your early years. Well, I can relate to that. And that is fascinating analogy right there because um, my work with Major League Baseball has taken me all around the world. And I remember my first time going to Holland, for example. And what fascinated me about Holland and, and some of the places in Europe there is the kids know three to four languages and they're quite fluent in, in a couple for sure. In Holland, though, yeah. when, the, when the players would speak their native tongue, um, they made sounds I, I could not reproduce. I I I, tr I would try, yeah. but I could not reproduce the sounds they were making in their in their everyday uh, native language. Isn't that fascinating? And when you yeah. say that, that's what that made me think of. So so that leads me to another and, big question, and I think I'm going to be opening sure. another Pandora's box here, Doctor Mitchell, for sure. But when we when we look at the development of the brain, then you know you talk about the nature of nurture, and we come out and in, in the one thing that's always fascinated me. Okay, I'll just sort of try to collect my thoughts here is the power of our environment on how we develop and learn and perceive things. You use that very powerful word of perception. How much yeah. influence, let's say, do our parents have? You know, you have the helicopter parents and you have mm -hmm. the absentee parents. Sure. And then you have the really guiding. I'm a lecture parent. <laughs> I lecture, lecture and the kids realize the eyes roll and stuff. Right. Mm hmm. What influence does that have? And that obviously that influence will actually probably change the course of our development. Fair to say? Yeah. 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 But in, in an interesting kind of a nuanced way. So the, just the nurture argument is that pure upbringing determines, you know, these kinds of characteristics um, of psychology and behavior. And even just looking within families, the fact that all the siblings don't develop exactly the same way kind of undercuts that that argument, right? Great. They have differences between them because they because they inherit different genes from each parent and because their brains just developed a certain way. Um, and actually, when people have done really big studies, really big twin studies and family studies, and especially adoption studies, what they find is that the um, the the impact of the shared family environment, so being reared in the same family, actually doesn't have a big effect on things like personality traits ah. as measured by psychologists. So things like extroversion and conscientiousness and neuroticism, um, openness to experience, agreeableness, there's a whole bunch of different constructs that psychologists use. Um, those traits are almost not affected at all by your family environment which is very, it feels very counterintuitive, right? It doesn't it does. seem like that should be the case. Right. But my feeling is that actually those traits, those constructs have been developed precisely because they're stable traits of a person that aren't so uh, uh, amenable or, or uh, accessible to, to outside influences. That's why psychologists have found them. And in fact, you know, most of our behavior is not determined on a moment-to-moment -moment basis by how extroverted we are or how conscientious we are. It's determined by how we've learned to behave, how we've adapted to our environment, uh, and so on, over the trajectory of our lives. And that is informed by those initial predispositions, but it's not controlled by it on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. They sort of give a baseline for how you might behave um, not just for uh, those aspects of personality, but also things like interests and so on. You know, what's what sort of things are you interested in? Sure. Um, and then, and then that um, 
continuously sort of interacts in this in this interplay between nature and nurture over your lives. Let me give you an example. Um, so you might have two children who uh, one of whom is uh, you know very uh, adept at reading initially, right? They just get it. They're really good at it. And another child who's dyslexic. Now this is an extreme example, but the, the point will hold. So those two kids now have not just different uh, wiring of their brains, they're having different experiences. So when they're trying to read, one of them finds it really rewarding. Um, they're getting encouragement from their parents. They're getting encouragement from their teachers. This is all going to lead them to want to read more, to enjoy it more, to practice that skill, to acquire that skill more and more. Whereas the other child, of course, finds it very difficult, incredibly frustrating. They're getting criticized all the time. Um, you know, they feel like they're letting people down and it's a natural inclination to throw their hands up and say, I can't do this. I don't want to. I don't enjoy it. I'm just not going to do it. Um, so they don't get as much practice, which means over time they fall further and further behind their peers uh, in, in school. And so what you get is an amplification through these environmental feedbacks of what might have been initially a small, a small difference. And I mean, that doesn't have to happen. If you know that a child is dyslexic, you can intervene earlier, um, but it tends to happen. And I think that, ten you know, that tendency happens for other things too, um, like, you know, even just like say, you know, how extroverted you are and you may be more sociable, uh, you may spend more time with other people, you may develop those social skills and again, become more adept at socializing. I mean, it's a skill. Um, whereas someone who's very shy may not develop those skills. And again, the, the, you get this amplification through time. And of course, parents can parents are involved in this loop as well, because partly because they often share traits with their children. So you might say have an anxious child and they might have overprotective parents for the same sort of genetic reason. And then that overprotectiveness may may feed into, you know, not allowing the child to to uh, learn how to manage risks and so on in, in their life. So that's what I mean by the nature of nurtures, that, that interplay that happens and the potential, often the amplification of the natural um, tendencies through seeking out environments that reinforce them. Oh, very, very interesting stuff. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Mitchell, Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College in Dublin. The whole idea of, of, of nature versus nurture, but the nature of nurture is just a beautiful twist on this whole thing. And you talk about um, um, the idea of these loops. I, I love the concept, Dr. Mitchell, of of loops in the way you're framing it up, because I, I think that really resonates with some of the conversations we've had on the radio show before when it comes to development, um, the influence of our environment. And you said something that's very interesting there that I just wanted to catch here. You, you said things we're interested in. We, would it be fair to say that, you know, if we look at how people sort of self-select, if we're allowed to, we're influenced, of course, by mm -hmm. our environment, by um, the availability of, of um, you know, uh, facilities and opportunities. There's so many things that, that, that will sort of dictate maybe where we go. But in school, let's talk about this. In academics, for example, you said, you know, the dy dyslexia versus an avid reader. Um, there's so many things that would maybe... Um, have a young mind gravitate towards mathematics. Like why is one yep, child yep. so great at mathematics? And me personally, I struggled like the Dickens, but when it came to sport, sport performance, the phys ed area, or, you know, it's more, more the mechanical side. I flourished on that side. It was, you know, just yeah. from a personal experience, I was fascinated by those math kids or those academic kids. Cause I struggled, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I had to work to get my grades is what I'm saying. Um, but if we look at, you know, humans in general, we typically gravitate towards things we're good at. But if, you know, here's a, here's a fascinating example, maybe to sum that up. I, um, this is back in the days of John McEnroe and John McEnroe won. I can't remember what, if it was the U S open or whether it was Wimbledon or something, but at that point in time, he won a big grand slam major to become the winningest male tennis player in history. In the interview after mm -hmm. the after the match, I remember this well. Uh, the interviewer said, "John, how does it feel?" The interviewer goes, "John McEnroe, how does it feel to be the best uh, player in the history of tennis?" And he and John McEnroe, because you know he's kind of outgoing, and and he said 
he said something along the lines, and I'm just paraphrasing based on my memory here, but he said something along the lines of, well, I can't say I'm the best player, you know? And the reporter kind of was astonished because, you know, well, he just became the winningest player in his. She goes, well, what do you mean? You just mm-hmm. won the Grand Slam. He goes, well, you know, I, I probably say there's probably people out there that could have been a lot better at me than me had they had the chance to play tennis. I thought it was sure. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the whole, um, I mean, there's, again, there's this sort of interplay between an internal drive that a person have that's that's just driven by their own interest in something. And, and you know, sometimes it takes it takes people a while to find what that is that really lights their, that lights their fire. But there are, um, you know, again, there's sort of psychological constructs that you can use um, to measure how interested people are in different sort of, um, in different areas, and and so one one area of difference would be whether you're sort of realistic or more interested in in ideas, and um, and so the realistic people would be you know maybe more practical, um, uh, interested in very you know particular things, maybe you know machines and stuff like that, um, whereas the uh, the idea people may be you know sort of more up in their own heads all the time and and. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a sort of a, a dimension of difference in, in in interest, and then there's another one which is uh, um, a separate dimension where you're more interested in in people or in things, and that's a dimension that you know psychologists can define. Um, and again, there's you know to some so some people may just find things completely fascinating and not be particularly interested in people um, and other people the, the other way. So there are those psychological differences. And of course, they, you know, those are just really broad dimensions. There's also very particular things like if you're really, really interested in baseball or um, cooking or art or music or, or mathematics or, um, you know, history, whatever it happens to be. Um, and I guess the goal, you know, it, from a society point of view, you would like to think that everyone would ha- get an opportunity to sort of explore all those different areas yeah. um, and, and and see, right, if they're really interested in them. And of course, our education systems, you know, they may be aimed at that, but they but they fail in in different ways and in different places. Um, so, but again, what you'll see is you'll get this amplification, right? So, um, if somebody has a real drive to do something. Um, you know, let's take music or or, or sports, say baseball, um, and they really want to practice it. And again, they're getting encouragement. Um, they're doing well. They can see that they're doing well. They're setting goals and they're reaching them. They're 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 developing in a way that is um, is is rewarding. Right, just the fact that they're getting better is rewarding for them to, enough to keep them doing it, and so on. But that's only going to happen if they're in an environment that's supportive of it where they can flourish where there's a teacher or a coach um or and or their parents who are um you know supporting them and encouraging them um, of course you've got the, the dangerous side where it goes into um you know parents who are not just encouraging them uh but demanding that they that they do it and and you know some of the really extreme athletes i mean you know i look at some of the ones in in like the olympics recently 14 year old divers and, and so on and, yeah. and just think god well i mean they're great diving is amazing but could they have had any chance to do anything else uh they've gotten to that that level right no no and that's a major major conversation in sport for sure and you know when we do look at that sort of that self-selection there's this whole idea of early specialization and and diversity and self-selection. And there is a balance there. Like you said, there's, there's sort of, um, um, that is sort of the nature of nurture. You know, uh, there might be a reason that a player or an athlete or a young person is only exposed or only has the opportunity in one sport. Maybe it's a family of five kids and finances just don't allow for multiple sports, or it might be where you grow up, where you're probably never going to become a, a mogul skier. If you're growing up on, you know, in the, in, in the South of Africa. Right. So, so the environment certainly does play a role there, but it's interesting to note. And and just in terms of learning, maybe just as we head towards the the, the home stretch here, when it comes to maybe learning and, and maybe to help our parents, even our athletes understand learning, we talk about brain development and genetics. You know, one of the things that really interested me, I read the article about the London cab drivers and how their mm-hmm. frontal lobe was overdeveloped because they had to have a certain knowledge base of the London streets 
in order to actually get their license to drive the black cabs. And when they did the images on those brains, they had a different different structure in their brain because of what they had to learn or what they had to do every day that you know, navigating the streets of London to dodge the traffic. And, and we've seen that uh, example in, in other areas as well. Um, and that always brings me back, Dr. Mitchell, to the idea of, you know, are we really doing a good job of coaching and creating this, this nature of nurture? Um, or maybe we don't have a big enough understanding of it yet in the big picture. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few separate things there. So first of all, um, there's a question of training specific motor skills, right? And 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 um, you know, coordination and you know whether it's a throwing a curveball, hitting a curveball, um, you know, hitting a forehand in tennis, whatever it is. There's some motor skills that you can learn. And my feeling is, though I'm not an expert in this area, that there is a pretty good base of of both neuroscience and psychology there for good ways, ways that will reinforce um, things, you know, even, even to the point of understanding, you know, why it's important, for example, to have a follow through on a, on a swing when the ball is left, you know, there's, what the follow, what's the follow through doing? The follow through is a training mechanism. It's a learning mechanism to ensure you're reproducing the same action over and over again. So there's a kind of a base there, which I feel is, is pretty good. Um, what, and then, of course, there's there's a you know more general um, training of of uh, you know endurance and and coordination and all of that. And and again, I think that that um, just everyone I think is more aware of um, you know fitness and but not but in a in an informed way. It feels like people are doing you know much more sophisticated sort of exercise programs and the core strengthening and stretching and all this kind of stuff. So so I feel like um, a lot of that is is proceeding pretty well. I guess there's another element to sports um, development, which is the character kind of building aspects of it or character testing or exposing aspects of it. You know, when you see, um, first of all, who's the who's the player who's clutch, who doesn't, um, you know, choke in the moment, who really, really is like, um, you know, late night, late night Lamont um, with the with the Giants recently, who's nine ninth inning um, hits all the time. Oh, amazing. Um, Yes, it's been brilliant. Been brilliant to watch. Um, so you know who there's going to be some differences between between kids and innately, I think, in that and that that are not well understood. Um, but what I don't actually know is, is whether that can be trained or not. And right. I guess the more um, you know, the more you do, probably the 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 less the pressure will be there. Although you know, you still see some you know amazing professional athletes who who just crumble. You know. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, um, there are things that we can train that are very specific skills. What generally they don't transfer, right. You know, so you can learn how to swing a, 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 you know, hit a swing, a baseball bat really well. That doesn't mean you're going to be a better swimmer or, you know, some, some other type of physical activity. Um, so of course you'll be fitter. You'll probably be more generally coordinated perhaps, but there's a there's a specificity to training some of those motor skills. Um, what's what's maybe more interesting is that broader sort of mental aspect of the you know sports psychology, and I don't have a good sense of it. Frankly, it's not it's not my area. You may know um, Jeff better than I do. Whether you know how much of that really works. There are aspects of you know um, anticipation and and um, mental planning and so on, which again, sort of gets back to the idea that the function of the brain is prediction and that that's what you're trying to do. So, um, yeah, sorry, that's a long roundabout way of saying, I don't really know. <laughs> but yeah, but it's such an interesting topic, right? And it is human. It goes well beyond sport. It is a human thing. And I think, you know, when we look at where we're at in terms of our understanding of human development, if we just use sport as a platform, and I like that you actually use sport and music as a, as sort of a, um, a pairing earlier because that's where a lot of our talent research comes from is from sport because it's so measured and it's so analytical sure. right now. And so is music. So a lot of the talent work or talent development research is done on, on elite musicians and, and uh, chefs and, and uh, of course athletes. So those worlds do collide quite often when it comes to the research. And as we, you know, are on a quest for an understanding of how we can help push human performance to new levels, I just wonder if we're not missing the big picture. I mean, this 
this you, like you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, this critical area where the brain is just so plastic and open. It's just, a, a, I don't want to say it's a blank slate, but it's just wide open for input up to the age of 25. And if we don't get the right flow of information, maybe at the right critical times, is that really going to lower that ceiling of development? It's something that's fascinated me for the last 15 years is, you know, everybody, right. Everybody's so focused on right now and getting good right now, having, as you mentioned, those 12 year olds in the Olympics or those 14 year olds really good right now. But but what is that going to do for that particular athlete when they're 22, 23? Are, Are we lowering that ceiling with a focus on high performance right now or is it raising it? We don't really know that yet, but it, what a yeah. fascinating concept though. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, the, there's a sort of a heartbreaking thing of just many kids not having an opportunity and, and um, for even just basic physical education. And, you know, I'm not talking about getting five or six year olds playing organized sports, right. just having phys ed, good phys ed in schools so that they learn how to put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, and having kids just be, you know, naturally be active and be running around outside as opposed to, you know, sitting on their um, on their PlayStations or whatever. I mean, we I I coach um, some baseball in, in Ireland and, uh, you know, we get some great kids who are natural athletes who they, everyone here comes to the sport late because it's not it's not generally widely played. Um, and some of them take it up really well. Some of them, um, especially if they've been playing uh, this this Irish game called hurling. Uh, which is a lot of hand-eye coordination that, you know, they're, they can be really good, really good hitters. Uh, but then we get some kids who, who um, honestly can't run. And, you know, they're nine or 10, 11 years old and, and um, they've missed in a sense, a, a bit of a critical period potentially to, to get them to, you know, to allow them to develop their athletic potential and just enjoy their, their bodies. Um, you know, because they, they, we're not expecting everyone to be an Olympic athlete. Yeah, no, and I agree. And it's very, it's a very interesting conversation right now because uh, interestingly enough, in my area where I live, uh, there is a huge conversation going on about restructuring the curriculum in schools, as you mentioned, you know, that, that physical education. And mm-hmm. I am a huge proponent. We need to do more. If there is one place we could not only impact the, the health and wellness of our society, and maybe even the education of our youth in terms of nutrition and hydration and just overall general health. You know, it's got to be our phys ed classes because we have them almost every day or a certain number of days per week. I believe that that particular position as a phys ed teacher needs to be redefined. I think the curriculum needs to be rebuilt. And again, not in the hopes of creating high-performance athletes, just in the hopes of creating a healthier, more robust population because we also know that the physical activity has a direct impact on our ability to learn. And boy, oh boy, if we can influence that through those critical brain development ages, uh, that surely has to be a good thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, we, we may all have these innate differences and in, in our um, personality and even, you know, it, intellect, our cognition, our um, coordination, our athletic abilities, and there may be a different ceiling for everybody. But the goal, I think, you know, across society should be that everyone should get those opportunities and be able to reach their potential and, and follow their own interests wherever they wherever they go. And, and um, yeah, that surely has to be a good thing for everybody. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mitchell, as we wrap up here, we know you're a huge baseball fan and we just went through one of the most epic final days in major league baseball that I can possibly remember. Um, You know, what a great, what a great group that is to study and look at, you know, the, those athletes that play major league baseball, but uh, heading into the playoffs here, we've got a couple wild card games coming up. We've got an incredible season going on. Uh, Is your team in the mix right now? Or who's, who's, who's your team? My team are the giants. Uh, I spent uh, 10 years, 10 years in the Bay area. So I'm a huge, huge giants fan. Um, and they've just had an incredible, incredible season. And actually, I mean, from a sports psychology point of view, it's really interesting because they have one of the biggest coaching staffs. I think the, probably the biggest by far in the majors. And they brought in, you know, all these people, some of them who didn't play um, the game. So they're really, um, you know, 
using a, a whole sort of different um, set of techniques, hitting, pitching, um, all the, the use of analytics and everything. So it's really fascinating from, uh, from that point of view to see how successful they've been with a group, you know, that they weren't rated. They were 40 to one uh, to, to win the pennant. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating, and it's been great. I was up, I was up all hours last night watching the, um, watching the game. I bet you were. I was thinking about you and the, doing the interview today. If you're going to be uh, sleep deprived for sure. Hey, the Giants. I said this earlier. The Giants are truly Giants right now. What a fantastic time! We're looking forward to the playoffs for sure. Oh boy, Dr. Mitchell. Well, I'm hoping this is the start of many conversations to come, everybody. You can check out Dr. Mitchell's uh, information at kjmitchell.com. His book is Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brain Shapes Who We Are. Uh, and maybe next time we can get into your book a little more, Dr. Mitchell, because it is a fascinating read for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. Excellent. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks a million. Oh my goodness. There you go. It's like a masterclass in neuroscience and genetics and wiring of the brain and how we learn. What's incredible to me is how trainable this is if you approach it the right way. Just a fantastic discussion. We have to thank Dr. Mitchell for that one. We will definitely uh, be continuing this conversation into 2022 for sure. Hey, you can follow Dr. Mitchell at Wiring the Brain on Twitter. Some fantastic stuff he, he, he is posting. And then, of course, you can get access to his book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brain Shapes Who We Are. What an incredible concept, right? It's kind of a uh, yin and yang, right? The wiring of our brain shapes who we are. And yet, almost everything that we experience influences the wiring of our brain. Not almost everything. Pretty much everything we experience has a little bit of an impact on how our brain is wired. And it's just the plasticity side has always fascinated me since we started learning about it decades ago, how the brain actually changes, physically adapts to the environment. It physically adapts to learning. And the cool thing, again, going back to a few episodes uh, ago into October, when we talked about zero hour fitness and the influence of exercise and cardiovascular exercise on the readiness of the brain to learn. And how that changed not just the fitness of students, but their ability to learn. It's like a physiological primer, a biochemical primer. The physiology and chemistry of the brain gets primed post-exercise and it's more susceptible to learning. It's also more susceptible to reading, reacting, and being more efficient in decision-making. That's why your warm-up in sport is so critical. And that's why it can't always be the same old humdrum warm-up. You need to do things, not just to prepare your body. I've been a big proponent of this. We've had Dr. Morazic on the show in the past to talk about this. He and I have actually done some little experiments on, hey, are there ways we might be able to stimulate the brain uh, to be at a higher level of readiness for sport, not just for a higher performance, but to reduce the risk of injury. And in our conversations with Dr. Morazic, all of his great work on concussions in professional football and hockey and sport in general. Um, that's where those conversations came from. Can we stimulate the mind pre-exercise before we get out there and compete even to not only improve performance, the answer is yes, but also to reduce the risk of injury, injury which yes, the answer is yes. Though there's not a lot of research or science on this, I'm telling you, that's how it has to work. And that's why we're so passionate about our warmups. You know, we do a general body warm up before exercise and training and practice. But when we start focusing on, let's say, um, for our volleyball players to receive the serve, you know, we'll get sports specific before we break for practice or for competition. We do a sports specific type of high intensity game speed drill. Uh, for our baseball players, right? We'll do a game speed agility drill before they go out and take the field uh, for practice. Uh, before games, we'll be in the cage. We'll actually stimulate the eyes and get them tuned in and focused in and on task for what they're actually seeing. You know, we've got this saying, we, we use this with our skiers as well, our freestylers and our alpine skiers. Are you looking or are you seeing? There's a massive difference there right? And how you perceive and understand what you're actually taking in through your eyes is critical to performance in sport. So here's a little trick of the trade for you athletes and coaches out there. All right. 
before you go into practice or a competitive setting, game setting, make sure you finish everything off. You finish your pre-game or pre-practice preparation with a game speed type of drill. In practice, if you're focusing on something specific, make sure that drill actually gets you tuned in to what you're supposed to learn. It's so doable and so much fun. All right, I could go on all day about this stuff, but listen, what a fantastic discussion with Dr. Mitchell today. You can go back, uh, go to crushperformance.com. You can get all the archives. You can re-listen to this episode over and over again. I'm going to, as I usually do with my notebook. (laughs) I listen back on all of our incredible guests uh, to really tap into their knowledge and connect the dots. And that's what it's all about. So uh, thanks to Dr. Mitchell. Listen, I want to thank you guys all for listening. Share this, your family, your friends, your teammates, your fellow coaches. If you're a GM uh, or somewhere in the administration of a sporting organization, get this with your executives, your scouts, because this is what it's all about. We're truly going to take human performance and sport performance to the new levels. These are the discussions. These are the discussions I believe we need to start having more often. So much fun too, by the way. So much fun. Getting better is fun. Let's just face it, right? On that note, that's it for today. Now, for you guys, get out there, go have some fun, stay safe, and go get better. Absolutely. Apply some of the concepts we talked about today for yourself. Absolutely for yourself. But also if you're a coach or teacher or your students and athletes as well. Fun stuff. All right. Talk to you next time here on Crush Performance as we dive back into the talent side, connect the dots with the brain game, and wrap up our 2021 themes here on Crush Performance through November and into December. Talk to you then. Goodbye now. Don't forget to write. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.